You are listening to the Heavenly Chi podcast, episode number 60. Today, I'm joined by Nava Carmen, and we're going to be discussing gender and sexuality and how this plays out in a Chinese medicine clinic. Hey, Claire. Thanks for inviting me to co-host with you. So much fun having you on, Nava. I love, I love the way that we chat. I get a bit of a slice of home. Yeah. Bit of Australia. <laughs> bit of <Yeah>. Australia. <laughs> so gender and sexuality and how this plays out for us as Chinese medicine practitioners. This has been on our agenda for a while, hasn't it? We've been thinking around how to talk about this. Yes. I certainly want to, to be practical uh, and also experiential as well as talking about it fairly briefly from a TCM point of view. And we can perhaps provide some resources around this too. Yeah, yeah. Books to read. There's a great book that's come out on this subject that I'd refer anyone to. And also just to familiarise yourselves with language is a really important one. Mm. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that everyone has different starting points with this material. Some people some people are just at the level of, okay, well, there's, there's straight and there's gay. And we maybe differentiate and say, okay, well, there's, you know, there's homosexual, there's bisexual. But there's, it's so much more nuanced than that and so much more deep and intricate than that. And I'd like to share, um, before we get started, just a little bit of a backstory for me. And I, I am a novice in this area. I do not profess to be an expert on how to, you know, how to be an expert on this in your clinic. It's a journey for me. It's a learning journey. And, and I'm always learning, collecting new information on new ideas. And that's why I'm really looking forward to this episode. And where it all started for me was a few years ago. And I think it was around the time, Nava, that you released your highly controversial and talked about article on misogyny in Chinese medicine. And there was a lot of issues around discrimination, discrimination based on race, but also discrimination based on sexuality around that time. And it was around that time that I came across a few different concepts where I didn't think that I was a racist and I didn't think that I was discriminating in any way, but I realised that some of my thought processes and some of my language patterns and some of my patterns of behaviour were discriminatory. And so I've really took that on board. I thought, okay, I really want to know how to be the best that I can be so that I'm not perpetuating these patterns of discrimination in both my personal and professional life. And so that started a journey for me where I was taking lead from certain practitioners whom, whom I really look up to, you know, um, certain practitioners who are very active in the LGBTQI community and people who are very active in, and, and this is totally off topic for this, for this podcast, but people who are also active in, in promoting racial equality as well. And it has opened up such, just such new horizons for me really, really opened up my eyes to what's possible. And speaking from, you know, when we're in a position of privilege, I think it's important for us to speak out and lead by example so that we can, I guess, demonstrate good leadership and demonstrate the ways in which we can do these things very easily, 
it's so easy to put a lot of these things into place with our clinics. But I thought I'd just share that as, as a starting point because I'm still, I'm still learning. I'm still learning. And so if I do accidentally stuff up, please forgive me. I'm doing my best. That resonates with me too. Mm. Also doing your best. I think that goes a long way. Also being aware of your own privilege and not falling into the trap of being fragile about that knowledge and that learning. So to be able to be stand corrected without being defensive, I think it's a huge part of sexuality, gender, even race work, especially race work. Part of that is also when you're not fragile around course correction, then you don't fall, I think, into the trap of being subject to your own feelings about something called tone policing. So if you get it wrong, it's okay to be told off or to be told that you've got it wrong. And rather than us going into defensive mode, going, okay, totally accept that's your lived experience. I'm taking that on board. So as a practitioner, it's actually ego work, I think, that we do in this work. So stepping away from our need to be right, stepping away from our need to be seen in a certain way, stepping away from feeling like you can't be wrong about anything without losing something of respect or standing in either externally or internally. So it's work that is in honouring other people. It, it also honours our own growth. And it occurs to me that any work that we do, I think it rolls downhill, power rolls downhill. So we are, that, that quote, I can't remember where it comes from, that quote that we are only as strong as the weakest member of our society. And just as the women are asking the men to give up power and step aside, the white women are, and then the black women are asking the white women to step aside and share power, and gay people are asking the cisgender, so cis meaning you are what you present to be. Um, so I'm a white cisgender woman, so I am white heterosexual presenting and heterosexual. So gay people are asking cisgender people to step aside and trans people are asking gay people to step aside. So everybody's asking that power be devolved down to the least powerful member of society. And in, and in recognising the challenges for each person as they give up power and acknowledging that and working with it, we actually empower ourselves more. I think the more we step aside, the better we've become. It's a very interesting dynamic and it's quite challenging. I think that's a really important point that you raise, Nava, that the ego, I guess, is the, the part that stands in the way the most of us being able to move forward and to develop this area of our patient interaction, really. If we think about what is sexuality, and it's such a private part of ourselves, it's really deep, really internal, very much connected to the heart. And if we are wanting to, if we're wanting to have relationships with our patients and interactions with our patients that honours all aspects of their shen, including the heart, the emperor, then we need to be honouring of their sexuality and, and the way that it is, you know, as you said, with that cis, you know, that cisgender, cis sexuality and whether that's there or not, if someone's trans, if someone is bisexual or heterosexual, there's, there's very few places in our clinical practice where it is, I guess, where it's relevant from the point of view of how it, how it plays out with our treatment, but it's very relevant in the way that we interact with our patients. And that starts from 
even before we meet our patients, sometimes we have wording on our websites that can speak to people in an inclusive or an exclusive way. We can have wording and questions on our intake forms that, you know, we need to be mindful of these things as well. And so I guess keeping the ego out of it and being aware of, hey, this is actually part of how we can be respectful and have a really honouring shen-to-shen connection with our patients and understanding ways to do this with sexuality and gender inclusive language is is a very important part of that. And I think we fell into that trap too, looking back. You and I talked about fertility in one of our late, last podcasts and we talked about male and female fertility, mm. but we left out everybody, capital letters, didn't we? Yes. Because, and I've done a lot of work on this lately actually, so I'm, I've just put up a diversity inclusive statement on my own website and it's on social media for anyone who wants to, to use it and it's for all the fertility support trained acupuncturists in my group. We've all got that. But we want, it's sort of entitled, I, I realised I had supporting male fertility and supporting female fertility, but I didn't support everybody's fertility. Mm. And But of course there are people who have fertility issues rather than men and women who have fertility issues. And I'm really was hugely ashamed that I had not, although I see it in my clinic, I hadn't actually addressed it. So for example, um, trans uh, men who want to preserve their fertility, what that looks like for them, the trauma of having to give up testosterone and go back to an estrogen driven form of the body that they didn't like to have trans vaginal ultrasounds which is to interact with and acknowledge a part of their body if they haven't had a full transformation that they really don't want to interact with and supporting people through that's supporting everybody's fertility, right? Not just men and women. So having those things out there and overt in that intake paperwork, having a policy up and also being aware of pronouns. I think that's really important. You know, there's this, there's a a non-binary, there's a, a queer, there's a, there's a femme, there's, a, there's all sorts of language that people who don't have a gender binary nature use to talk about themselves. And one of the things that you can do is to ask for a pronoun. And by that I mean do you refer to yourself as he, she, they, them, him, her? What is the pronoun that applies to you that I can call you that will make you feel seen and heard? And I'm tussling with whether to put that in my email signature because a number of people that we've just had some great CPD in my group, I provide a monthly free CPD in my group. We've had a, we just had a really great one. And I noticed that on that speaker's email signature, they had pronoun was he and him. And I thought one of the things that I could do is put a pronoun of she and her on mine, which immediately tells people who might not be who are on the spectrum that I'm aware of that spectrum and I'm aware of being respectful of their pronouns. So I'm still working through all of the political implications of how we use language in our daily life. Yeah, I think it's. I think that's a great idea, and I've started to see that popping up on the occasional email signature that you know of emails that I'm receiving, and I think it's a great idea, and it's very new, and there's you know there's a whole you know people fall on various parts of the spectrum in all aspects of their life. There are a lot of people out there who are early adopters 
I put my hand up as an early adopter. I, I like to think of myself as being ahead of the curve. And then there are other people and their comfort zone is they like to be at the end. They'll do it once everyone else is doing it. Um, and then, the, you know, the bulk of us fit somewhere kind of in that, in that middle zone. Mm. I think it's a great idea. You know, it could seem, it, it could be seen to be as, you know, you're trying to be too cool, mm-hmm. trying too hard to be hip, but I think that's probably on balance worth the risk. I think it's a great, uh, I think it's a great idea and it's great to lead by example, especially because you are someone who really champions the cause of, you know, your anti-discrimination in all shapes and forms. And this is one way in which I think you can normalise a context Mm. for people to put their pronouns regardless of what their gender or sexuality is. That it's not just for people who are not white, cis, women or men. Mm. I've had some interesting, some very interesting and very disturbing conversations online with various practitioners over the last few years. And there are some, there are some people who have taught or who are teaching that there are treatments for people who are not, who are not cis, who who do not, I don't even know the right way to say it. Who are not presenting as cis. Yes, that there are treatments for people who are not presenting as cis. And I'm curious to hear your reaction to this and what your response would be to these people. I think it's a massive misinterpretation of the classics to say that. And also a disservice to practitioners who know that intention is so much of what we do. You know, if you think about... When someone comes into your clinic, the issues that they have dealt with in their life, I find around emotional trauma, around living in fear, around judgment, around guilt and shame, even some self-loathing and suicide, these are things, these are real things that people deal with. And it's akin to the white Christian movement of we must fix you and also the Jewish Orthodox movement of there is something wrong, we must fix you, we must marry you off to a woman if you're a gay. And I think it does a huge disservice to us as a profession to come at it with that. So, for example, if I may just have a moment where where I can talk a little bit about um, male to female and female to medication, female to male uh, patients who come through the door, so trans people who come through the door, having an understanding of their constitution and having an understanding of the effect the medication has on that underlying constitution is very different to saying, I, I understand that you were a woman or you were a man and the effects that the medication has on you as a result. So that's not treating them as an aberrant woman or a man. It's treating them as a person and looking at their chi. And I think the intention and the clarity we bring to that is hugely important. And even the unspoken experience for the patient, if you're coming at it that way, is completely different. I think that's really important to acknowledge. And it's, it's, a, good, it's a good conversation to get some practice at as, as well because it's, 
it is relevant to our treatment and and this is one of the this is one of the areas where it, it does become relevant you know what is the physiology of your body and how is the physiology of your body responding to the medication that you're taking which is helping to create a more easeful experience within yourself because it's getting you closer to the sexuality that feels right or to the you know it's getting you closer to I guess that that inner sense of what your gender feels like within and I I'm reminded I'm always reminded by this case that I had a few years ago and it was a it was a young girl four years old and she came in, her mother brought her in and she had this searing, burning pain in the palms of her hands and it was affecting her sleep and she was, you know, she had a lot of insomnia and it was such, such strong heat that was going on, this heart heat. And it was, it was fascinating and, and she responded really well to the acupuncture. She came in for about four or five four or five sessions over the course of about maybe a month to six weeks and everything resolved and everything was fine. And um, I treated her mother before and after this for, um, for a separate issue. And over the course of the following 12 months, it became apparent that this four-year-old girl was actually going through a lot of gender, gender identity issues. And through a lot of counselling and support through, you know, various um, medical establishments, she she became one of the youngest people in Melbourne and maybe also in Australia to be recognised. Um, and she she started to make a, well, at least a like an outward transition. So changed her name, changed her hairstyle, changed, you know, all of the things that they could change ethically in a six-year-old were changed you know the parents were super supportive they found a school that was really supportive they had a a healthcare team that was really supportive and all of that shen stuff died down as that inner piece of ah now I feel like I'm in the right body now I feel like I belong within myself everything came good and so the only part, I guess, where a gender identity would need to be treated as such from it, you know, does it require treatment, is if it's causing agitation to the Shen. And it's not that it's it's not the gender identity that's the problem. It's that the Shen needs support to be able to feel more easeful within within that person. Um, and I, I always remember that case so so vividly and you know, he would be, oh, he would be in his teens now. So I wonder how that's playing out now. I have, I've lost touch with that particular family, but um, yeah, so fascinating. And you were needling though, based on constitution. You're not, you were not needling on, based on sex per se, you were based on constitution. And if you were to treat him now, it would be based on his own self-identification. Yeah. It would be meeting them where they are. And asking questions is a really important part of us as practitioners, a part of the work we do, right? But the questions we need to ask our clients who may be presenting somewhere on that spectrum are are questions like, who are you? Where do I meet you? What do you need to be, how do you need to be seen and referred to? 
And 42 years of conditioning mean that the clients I have who are not presenting as cis or who are using different pronouns, my God, I trip up 80 times in a session and I just keep correcting myself. It's, you know, when I'm talking about those clients, even when I'm, when they're not in my presence, I'm still tripping up and correcting myself because I'm trying to get my head around a language that I wasn't brought up with, but keeping on picking myself up and keeping on doing it becomes the thing I do, the important thing I do. And that's, you know, that's such an important part of the process. I think seeing ourselves as on a journey, you know, this destination, this mythical destination of perfection, you know, where we always say the right thing and we always have the you know the perfect word you know like it's that's the journey that we're on I don't know that any of us ever really truly get there Um, but I think it's important that we embark yes and so what would be your recommendation for some starting points for people if there's practitioners out there going wow I really don't even know where to start Google is your friend. What you don't do is ask your patients to educate you. What you don't do is ask people to uh, perform emotional labor on your behalf or to tell you you're doing it right or wrong. You take that elsewhere. So you Google, you look at places like Stonewall, you look at gay, queer, non-binary educators, you look at your social media feed and you see how white and cis it is and you make an effort to diversify your social media feed so what you're not seeing is just a reinforcement of your own identity that goes a long way there are a lot of people doing amazing educational work out there Um, and perhaps actually would be good idea to share my instagram feed instagram's a great place for it um, for people who are listening to this so they have people they can follow who are are doing this work and who, who they could see um, reading, reading all about this and just taking responsibility for educating yourself. And then, as we talked about earlier, meeting patients where they are when they come in to see you and recognising that actually there's a group of symptoms that you see in patients when you try and fix them rather than meeting them where they are. There's characteristic, my experience tells me. You actually create upper body issues, upper jowl issues when you treat someone like you're trying to fix them or uh, as the uh, the gender they were born with rather than the one they have decided is their own. Um, dizziness, headaches, digestive upsets, emotional distress, um, anxiety, depression, insomnia, hot flushes, all the upper jowl symptoms will come up as weird miscellaneous symptoms if you are treating them in a way that is not congruent with who they are. And I think it's really interesting there's books written about this and it's certainly reflected in my own practice. So it's getting to be familiar with how to work with people who are on this gender-fluid spectrum, whatever that may be, and not asking them to do the work. You do the work before they get into your clinic and then you make it possible for them to know that they can talk to you and correct you and you'll be okay with it. I think that's a really great point is making it clear to people that you are open to receiving constructive feedback. If I say anything wrong, if there's anything that you would like me to say differently, then please let me know. What a great thing. We prioritise their comfort. What a great thing to say to your patient. Mm. Mm. Keeps your ego humble, right? Keeps you small where it should be. 
Yes, and I wonder what's been your experience in the UK, Nava, with with homosexual couples and well, non heterosexual couples going through IVF. What's what's the system like for them over there? Pretty good, actually. I would say. Look, I'm I'm coming from my point of view, right? I acknowledge my privilege in answering this question, but I have dealt with a lot of these couples over the years, um, both male and female. Um, and not just when they're having their own children when it comes to a lesbian couple, but with surrogacy and donor issues for gay men. And there are women's clinics, there are um, charities, there are organisations, there are, um, and these organisations have done fantastic work at changing trust, local trust policies around this. Not that they always follow it, I should say, but they are, the information is out there. There's stuff that's been enshrined into government acts. So there's, there is actually a lot of movement. I think the thing is, though, you only know what you know. So unless you've done the work to find out about this and to find out about how you can support your clients and to find clinics that are accessible to these clients, you're going to fall down as a practitioner. You have to have actually done that work to bridge that gap. And when I'm dealing with, let's say, um, gay couple, male gay couple who want to use donor, surrogate, sometimes the same, sometimes that's different, your work is not just support the female donor or the female surrogate, it's to support the emotional well-being of the gay couple that's going through this journey. And if you are treating a lesbian couple who are going through the journey of one or the other trying to become pregnant, then what I'm often seeing is that one part of the couple will give the eggs and the other will carry the baby. So you're supporting both persons, people's fertility and sexuality. And I guess I don't necessarily see uh, the, the main disharmonies that I see come from mostly we're talking about people who are taking hormonal medication that doesn't match the it, it it doesn't match the physiology of how the person was born so if you've got someone born as a woman and then they transition to be a man or they're taking you know male supplements usually testosterone um that's they're the main places where it where it shows up or people who are born as men and they are taking female hormones. That's These are the main places where I'm seeing the disharmony coming, you know, where people are presenting for needing help. And I guess then there's that other layer that you were talking about as well where or, or what happens when people are experiencing that internal distress by the way that they're treated and being and being interacted with in a way that doesn't sit well with their shen and with their psyche. I guess they're the two main things we're talking about here. Would you agree? Would you add anything else to that? I would say that you're right. I would say that if we talk a little bit about the trans experience and then talk a little about the emotions associated with someone who's struggling with their sexuality, that might be useful. Yeah. Because, of course, you're not always going to see people in trauma in your practice. Some people are just cool with the way they are and they're just coming because they've got a sore shoulder. Yeah. And we so don't, don't necessarily to... have to have a conversation about, you know, the trauma they had when they were 11 to treat them, right? We don't want to imply that every experience is traumatic. But just to be aware is really useful. So even when you're looking at, for example, when you're treating somebody who is a female to male transition and they've just had gender-confirming surgery and they've had their breasts removed, and they're feeling amazing about themselves, but you are still having to help them deal with scarring. 
And how do you touch a body with respect? How do you help with scarring as an acupuncturist? You know, one of the great ways is that, you know, that feathering technique where you put um, perpendicular sort of, uh, sorry, diagonally perpendicular needles. It's hard to do it on a podcast to describe, but diagonally perpendicular needles on either side of the scars. And you talk about massage and you're really clear about having, you know, even the knowledge that uh, is not often, get, not always given to people that they have to put sunscreen really rigorously, rigorously on those scars because the first thing that most people want to do have had gender confirming surgeries walk around without a top on. So being aware of, of, of that and, and getting the client to massage the area because this is an area that previously they would not have wanted to be touched. And if they have spent, you know, however long it is in their lives taping their breasts or binding their breasts, the effect on the Zong Chi of that has to be taken into account. So you're looking at lung chi and you're looking at how it connects to the kidney energy. So really understanding that what they've gone through is it's constitutional. It's more than the physical and I always say that no matter what you're doing, the constitution dictates your response as a practitioner to, to medication, to experience, to, to, to everything that they're going through. I think they're really good points, you know, I, that you raise. It's relevant to all patients regardless of what is going on for them. You know, all of our patients are going to have parts of their body that they feel, parts of their body that may be completely off limits to us you know, they're not prepared to give their consent to us to be able to treat them there. And so I think it's, you know, it's especially important if people have had gender-confirming surgery that we that we ask them up front and just say, you know, well, this is the reason that I'm wanting to do this particular treatment in this particular part of your body. Do you feel comfortable with this? Offering them options if, you know, or giving them some time to think about it as well, rather than kind of putting them on the spot, standing over them, hovering with your needles and say, I'm just going to shove these in your, you know, in your chest. How do you, you know, is that okay? And then just kind of like whack in they go. I think, you know, being respectful and I'm sure a lot of us are, but I guess it's just bringing, bringing this more into focus because it can be such a sensitive, a sensitive topic. These people have often carried around a lot of mixed emotions for some people you know like you said some people it's not traumatic at all other people have harbored so much shame and you know they've been quite private and secretive for a long time and that has very constricting effects on the chi you know it keeps and can create a lot of sensitivity as well and it's good you bring that up because that's something you know to really to be aware of the effect of that from a tcm point of view for, of that guilt and that shame and the stasis that it actually creates, I think, in the lower jowl, funnily enough, all around where the genitalia is and the systemic effect that that has on the liver and the relationship with the heart and the kidney. And my experience is that it eventually it causes digestive upset, it affects the Gucci, and then, boom, you go down the line, it affects the spleen blood and the heart blood and you have Shen disturbance and there is a line to be aware of and quite often when you're dealing with clients who've been subject to long-term guilt and shame you are absolutely seeing immune and digestive issues Crohn's disease even diabetes colitis constantly getting colds there's a real line of understanding from an emotional to a physical place I like using a lot of she cleft points for these mm -hmm. types of 
stagnations. I really like, um, you know, if we're getting to the nitty gritty of, you know, I'm aware of the time, if we're getting to the nitty gritty of, you know, what does it look like in, in clinic? You know, what points am I choosing? What formulas am I choosing? I really like the she cleft points. I like points like liver five for specifically targeting, mm-hmm. targeting external genitalia. If there's been some, um, you know, something going on, in that particular area, whether there's been surgery, whether there's, you know, just if there's any anything going on there, I like liver five, you know, and she cleft points are just my favourite. Um, I love kidney nine. It's the she cleft point of the one of the one of the yin eight extra meridians, and I always get the yin chow and the yin way mixed up. I swear I can't remember how to work it out. But anyway, it's the she cleft of one it's of good them. good to be clear that no matter how much experience you have, you still get mental blocks about stuff. I still have to pick up my book and look at things too. You know, <laughs> I have to look it up every time, every time. Anyway, it's the one that matches up with spleen four and, <laughs> and pericardium six. Um, but I love that point. And I really like that um, from a herbal point of view, I, you know, I love Shui Fu Ji Tang for just opening up the chest and unbinding the chest. I just think that's such a fabulous formula. And so if there's anything going on, even just like a hint of Shui Fu Ji Tang alongside of whatever else they need for their constitution, that would, you know, I would be choosing herbs from that particular formula to modify um, any other constitutional formula that I'd be giving them. And it's a good point to talk about herbs just briefly here because if you are a person who doesn't make their own formula and who use prescription formula, how many of our herbal books and formula have the word woman in it? Women's treasure, women's formula, formula for women's X, formula for women's Y. So just to be aware that if you're going to use a formula with the word woman on it, that you either have the conversation with the client about your acknowledgement that this is the right constitutional formula for them and they're to ignore the word woman on it and you're not treating them as such, so to speak, or to make your own formula that is tailored to them that does recognise that. It's just it's sort of in the same line as pronouns, right, to be aware of the impact of a, you know, a trans man being handed a woman's formula. The same way that if we were giving a woman's formula to to a cis man, <laughs> we'd have that yep. same conversation. Go, look, I know exactly. this doesn't match. You know, the wording of this is a, is a mismatch, but the herbs within it are perfect for you right now. And the same, I was thinking when you were talking about points, the same way I would warn a client or I would talk to a client rather about next week I'd like to do bladder one and here's where it is, or next week I'd like to do ren one or do one or something vulnerable. That's you know, it's just being aware to vocalise that experience. Mm. It's not that different after all. In a way, it just has to be more respectful and thoughtful, overtly thoughtful of all our clients. Yes. What sort of herbs and points do you like with your, do you like to use with your patients, Nava? Well, I have a fertility practice mainly and a lot of what I see is stasis. Mm. Yeah. And I am... Um, I use uh, one of my favorite formulas at the moment. You and I have been corresponding about it, actually. We're, we're having an ongoing discussion about formulae um, at the moment about a particular formula we're trying to construct for, for some of our fertility patients. But because I specialize in reproductive immunology, I center often uh, blood stasis and um, retain pathogen as part of my work. So I use Wujimwan a lot and formulas that are around that. Yeah, yeah. 
And no coincidence that when we're talking about the spectrum of gender and sexuality, that chi stagnation and blood status are often at the center of the problem because people are stuck, stuck in some way in their experience. And so I do feel that a lot of the time that that stuckness becomes the cause of deficiency, the she turns into shoe, if you like, rather than the other way around, which is what I see more of in my cisgender clients. So you're liking to use a lot of Wujin one with your, with your patients to address the stasis. And is that regardless of where specifically in the body you see the stasis as stemming from or? No, this is very much lower jowl stuff because, you know, again, because of that fertility aspect of my practice, I'm not mm. seeing the more general things that other practitioners might see. Mm. So when I'm working, I'm working on aspects of fertility and and if their stasis comes from their heart, yes, like if if the root of their lower jaw stasis is from the heart and the you know the stuckness that they have in the upper jaw, do you see much of that? Do you modify for that? I don't tend to use herbs for that. I like that's where the we're stymied at the moment, but that's where acupuncture and herbs come in for me. So yeah. I would often use herbs for the lower jaw and acupuncture for the upper jaw. My experience mm-hmm. is the transformation can be very swift. So Ren 17, Sanjiao 10 for some um, cases. So we're looking at, when we're looking at Sanjiao, for example, I actually got through, I got and did some, made some notes about the importance of Sanjiao and emotional trauma when I was preparing for this uh, podcast, because so much of what we're seeing around emotional trauma and how that plays out in fertility work and the con- how fertility work ca- often comes into conflict with adopted sexuality or, or preferred sexuality and the emotional trauma that that engenders. We center the spleen and the earth in that. And from there, when that's not dealt with properly, when we're having trauma, the axis is affected. And, and so the Sanjiao is massively affected. And so I love Sanjiao 10 for that. So I'm often to unblock the chest. It's a convoluted way around. I hope I've explained it well, but Sanjiao is an access point for me in this work where it might not be with cisgendered people. I like that. I don't use Sanjiao 10 a lot. I'll have to look that up. I use Sanjiao 4 a lot, but Sanjiao 10 is not, not on my radar. So I'll check that out. I use a lot of the upper kidney points mm. along with REN17. The stomach, uh, kidney 27. Kidney 27, yeah. 26 and 24. Mm-hmm. The, sp- the upper spirit points. On and the windows chart. of heaven points? No, I don't use those a lot. And, in fact, one of the things that I really like doing, and this is something that I picked up from my time learning from Heather Bruce, she does a lot of massage and mm. some really, really strong, deep massage into those intercostal muscles um, in the, those kind of upper upper three, upper four ribs and, you know, coming from the sternum out towards the, uh, to the insertion of the pectoralis muscle. And that's the, there's so much, so much in there. You know, it can be quite exquisitely tender for some people and uh, it's a really effective way. I just spend about 60 seconds on each side, but it can be a really effective way to, get rid of some of that really, just that really trapped energy that can get stuck there. But, I mean, I only do that if I have the time. I don't often have the time for for that. But if I've got a little bit of leeway with my Mm -hmm. scheduling, then I'll um, I'll spend that extra time with a patient to do that. And there's a point under the breast 
And so in when after gender confirmation surgery, it's an important point to use to dispel chi. So if you lift up your breast, you have a rib and then just sort of if you press into the bottom of the breast or where the breast was, just above a rib, you're going to find, as you say, an exquisitely tender point. That's a fantastic one for everybody to massage, exquisite in men too. Is that above liver 14? Yes, it's above liver 14. It's actually into the breast tissue itself, bottom of the breast. Mm-hmm. And mass, you know, talking about massage, how rarely the front is massaged, how rarely the breasts, the chest, the abdomen is massaged in any normal massage. So one of the things I do is fertility and womb massage, which I adopt for men and women because actually touching and moving the chi physically in the lower jowl is a huge bit of my practice. And sometimes it's self-care, so I'm talking about castor oil packs and self-massage, and sometimes I do it. So it sort of depends on the client, but it can be pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. So it's such a big topic and such an important topic, and I'm so glad we got to cover it today. And let's continue the conversation. Let, let's pepper our future conversations with, with more inclusivity and even more discussion um, mm. of these, you know, very important, very important ideas. More acknowledgement more openness that's what the world needs (laughs) we're on a journey we're taking everyone with us we are come along with us Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts and your feedback on this episode you can comment on our facebook Um, we might even start an instagram and you can find us on instagram how's that for an idea (laughs) more work for us (laughs) more work just add more things to the to-do list or share my list of, of people to follow on Instagram if you want to educate yourself. That's a great place to start. Fabulous. And until next time, stay well and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Bye for See now. You later. Bye.